1: Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some great guest co-hosts, as well as some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try to make some sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the. Tears. What a great show we have today. First, we're going to be joined by Mark Joseph Stern, who's a senior writer at Slate, and he's going to talk to us all about what's going on with the Supreme Court right now. Then we're going to talk to Daily Beast politics reporter Roger Sullenberger, who's been, of course, breaking tons of insane stories about the Herschel Walker race. And we're going to talk all about what else he's seeing there. But first, we're joined by Josie Duffy Rice, who writes the substack The Unnamed, where she writes about prisons and prosecution. Josie Duffy Rice. Josie Duffy Rice.
2: Andy Levy.
1: Welcome to The New Abnormal. Thank you so much for guest co-hosting today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
1: We've got a great topic on something that is sort of in your wheelhouse, as they say. Just before we uh, were about to record this, President Biden, you may know him as Dark Brandon, he issued a statement saying that he is taking three steps to and the imprisonment of people solely for using or possessing marijuana. His first step, he says, he's announcing a pardon of all prior federal offenses of simple possession of marijuana, and he's already directed Attorney General Garland to set up a process for this. This will affect roughly 6,500 people and free them from imprisonment, which is great news. He is also urging all governors do the same thing at the state level. Uh, His third thing is he is asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to start an administrative process to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Right now, it's a Schedule One drug, which is where we put what we consider to be the most dangerous substances, such as heroin, fentanyl, uh, methamphetamines, etc., and marijuana, for some God only knows reason, is in that same uh, classification. So he's going to look at changing that. Josie, what uh, y- you know, what what's your take on this?
2: It's great news. I saw sixty five hundred as the number of people that will benefit from a pardon like this. It's not going to get a lot of people out of prison because not a lot of people are in federal prison for simple marijuana possession. But it does change a lot of people who are out of prison and are facing other obstacles. Like they can't get housing or they can't, you know, get jobs because of their criminal record. It helps them immensely. So it's good news. It's also, I think, worth noting kind of the bare minimum that we should expect from a president right now. Right. Yeah, we are. I thought we were all on the same page. You shouldn't be in <laughs> have a federal record for simple possession of marijuana. I think you know we saw this with Obama and the pardons. It's a much bigger exercise of clemency than we've ever seen, um, or not that we've ever seen, but that than we've seen in the past couple of decades at least. But it's also like I think they could go bigger, right? There are a lot of people serving time in federal prisons right now or facing federal charges. For things that like the general population would conclude are not worth like the Fed's time or maybe any system's time. I'd like him to go bigger than simple possession of marijuana.
1: And look, maybe he will. And I, I'm mm-hmm. I'm totally with you on this. And you know, on the one hand, it, it kinda sucks that we're so used to things being so awful that the barest minimum gets us happy and excited. Right. So I yeah, I completely feel you on that one. But on the other hand, this is more than obviously any other president has yeah, done. Exactly. And so, you know, we got to give him credit for that at least. And and look, there's also the, you know, I guess there's the argument to be made that by doing this in small steps, as you pointed out, you hope that this is the first step of of potentially many. It sort of makes it An easier—this is a horrible metaphor for a drug thing—makes it an easier pill to swallow, you know, for the people who somehow are still opposed to stuff like this and think that America's problem is that not enough people are in prison. Right. So, I don't know. I I, I mean, you know, recognizing political constraints and stuff like that, look, this is— there's nothing bad about this other than, right. ah, be nice if it went further.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, and also it's important to remember, these are real people. These are 6,500 real people, right? Exactly. And So when we talk about it in sort of a theoretical sense, like, oh, he could go bigger, of course, and I want him to, and I yes. recognize that this is life-changing for thousands of people. I think like, you know, we've seen in the past, again, past couple of decades, like, you know, After Jimmy Carter, really, we've just seen the number of people who presidents are willing to pardon or commute their sentences. It's just dropped so drastically. And Biden, by the way, for the first year or even longer, didn't, you know, commute any sentences, didn't pardon anybody, hasn't taken action on the death penalty like we would have hoped. Right. And so I think it's a good sign that he's embracing this huge executive power, which is clemency, this huge ability for a president to demonstrate mercy and kind of to impart that as a value more broadly. I mean, I'm glad to see him call on governors to do the same, right? It's shifting what we see as the median for what we should expect from executives in power.
1: Yeah, totally agree. I mean, and look, there are going to be governors, probably particularly on the Republican side, who are just going to basically say, hell no. Right. And they're not going to do this. And look, let's be fair, there are going to be Democratic governors who do right. the same thing because the Democratic Party is also filled with people who have completely unmoted and or outmoded and and just archaic views on things like marijuana. But look, out of the three things, that to me is like the, yeah, OK, I'm glad he's doing it, but it has no force of anything.
2: Right. Absolutely.
1: I just want to make clear, I am not interviewing you here. This You are co-equal on this show yeah. right now, but because this... this... This is, you know, you are very much an expert in criminal justice and prison reform and stuff like that. There are just questions I want to ask you because you simply have more knowledge than I do on this thing. Yes, please. I think maybe I misspoke at the top because I saw the 6,500 number and thought that that was 6,500 people being released from prison. But I think you sort of corrected me politely by not actually saying you were correcting me is it not 6,500 people will be released from prison, but it will affect 6,500 people because some may be out of prison already, but it's on their record and it will now be expunged?
2: That is right. Also, I didn't hear you say 6,500 at the top, so I wasn't secretly correcting you, but had I heard <laughs> okay. it, that might be what it was doing. So yeah, so it's 6,500 people with federal convictions for simple possession. So that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that they did spend time in prison. It could mean they never spent time in prison you know, for that, but maybe it has contributed to later charges, the you know punishments they face being higher because they already had this on their record. And like you said, it, it includes people who are already out. I don't know the numbers on this, but my informed read is that it's not like a lot of people are going to federal prison anymore for simple marijuana possession. Sure. And I couldn't honestly tell you how many how many went ever just for that charge alone. Right. As we know, like any kind of additional criminal charges make your life harder. So they either add more time to your sentence for something else or they make, like we said, the kind of civil consequences and housing, immigration, custody, jobs, employment, like all of those get a lot more difficult.
1: I think what you're saying is it's a gateway charge.
2: <laughs> it's a gateway charge. Exactly. A gateway charge.
1: Um, okay. So even if I didn't say 6,500 at the top, in my mind, that's what I thought. So you did mind correct me. Okay, and great. I, and I appreciate that.
2: Yes. You're on the same page.
1: Yes. Okay. So I want to ask you about this, the sort of the third provision uh, or the third thing that President Biden is calling for, and that's the rescheduling marijuana under federal law. And what is it mean to reclassify that to, well, he can't classify it any higher, so it would have to be to a lower classification?
2: The bottom line is that Biden can start this process, right? He can start the administrative process, but he can't actually, like, he doesn't have the power to reschedule drugs on his own. That's right. a congressional power, right? And there have been bills in the past. I mean, I think the first bill to move marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 is like 1981, Right. This is like a long process. I don't know when the last one was, but I know there was one in 2011. Barney Frank and Ron Paul introduced a bill to remove it from the schedules entirely, which died. It seems like Biden's not saying it should be descheduled, but it should be rescheduled, which again is kind of like a simultaneous executive and legislative effort in the sense that like, the executive can start the process and congress needs to needs to pass a law amending it so you know i think what we're seeing here is the difference between law and and practice you know kind of almost like the difference between theory and practice when it comes to the law because marijuana is a schedule 1 drug obviously under federal law and at times in the past it's been treated much more seriously right now because of prosecutorial discretion and because of resource limitations, like it's not as if it's being treated like fentanyl in the federal system. It's not, you know, like regardless of how it's classified, that's not how people who are caught possessing it or even trafficking it are, are treated or handled. But I think symbolically, and also on some level in practice, like we want our laws to reflect what we know about drugs and how drugs work. And right now, like they're just kind of these relics of the drug war where like right. we threw everything in one category and said like, everything is equally bad, which is crazy.
1: Yeah. It also feels like uh, before we move on to the next story and, I, and, I- You know, it feels like this is the kind of thing that where cops could have someone in the room and say, you know, uh, we've got a we've got a dime bag of of marijuana on you. You know, that's a schedule one drug. Right. Uh, You can go away for X number of, you know, things that may be technically true, but aren't true in practice. But you're a scared person sitting there.
2: Exactly. And that is honestly a huge part of any of these kind of efforts to, like, you know, reschedule drugs or pardon people or call for non-prosecution. like. Even if this stuff doesn't really play out in practice in a way that you can point to, you know, 10,000 people and say that they got put into prison in the past year for simple possession of marijuana on the federal level, they are bargaining tools that give prosecutors and police a leg up and they give the state a leg up when they're going after, you know, a regular person, right? They, they, they are a threat. They are a tool in the toolbox of the state. And I am a big believer, um, I don't think it comes as a huge surprise, that I'm a big believer that removing those tools is a way of getting closer to a just system. Um, because what happens in the interrogation room and, you know, at the plea bargaining stage... Is not going to show up on a you know a conviction a list of right. who's convicted for what, but it matters.
1: Yes, I'll give the last word on this story to President Biden, who ended his statement by saying, "Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs." That just seems like a good way to move on to someone close to home for you, Josie. Uh, (laughs) That is uh, Herschel Walker, who in a couple months may be your senator.
2: Oh, my God. Don't say it.
1: (laughs) So later in the show, I'm going to interview Roger Sullenberger, the Daily Beast reporter who broke the story earlier this week that Herschel Walker paid an ex-girlfriend, or I'm sorry... Uh, Well, yeah, I guess it was an Mm ex-girlfriend, even though he was married at the time, to have an (laughs) abortion. And this story has just exploded this whole week. And Herschel Walker's son is involved now, his conservative son, who is now very upset with his dad publicly coming out. Really strongly against him on Twitter and in videos. This is Christian Walker, who is sort of a TikTok influencer. And then, you know, Walker has pretty much denied, well, he's called the story lies, but he's also talked about uh how he's been redeemed. And he's used language that makes it sound like, well, maybe he did actually do this thing. Right. Uh, so he, he's sort of all over the place on this. But So let's talk about the political ramifications of this. Do you think this will affect the vote at all in Georgia?
2: At all? Yes. Enough? Enough. I don't know. You know, like we saw a couple of years ago, right, Georgia is on the cusp of being blue. I would not call it a blue state. I don't even know if I would call it, frankly, a swing state. But I would say that, like, it's closer to a swing state than maybe its neighbors are. Um, on all sides, pretty much, and I think that this is not nothing. I think that like it contributes to people's distrust and um, perception of of Walker as kind of like a loose cannon that's kind of unpredictable, right? But at the end of the day, like Herschel Walker will vote with Republicans on literally everything. They'll do he'll do exactly what they want, right? He's essentially a puppet, um, and. I say that because he doesn't seem to have like the cognitive skills to even think through right. some of this stuff. Right. So, you know, we're talking about someone who will do what Republicans ask him to do. And at the end of the day, that's far more important to voters. Now, I do think there's a chance, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people say people aren't going to vote for Warnock over people who are for Herschel Walker are not going to change their vote to Warnock, and I think that's probably true, mm-hmm. or I should say definitely true. But I think it's also possible that they just don't vote in that race, right? Like right. we're already seeing that Warnock has like more support than, for example, Stacey Abrams, who, which signals that like some people. Are already supporting Brian Kemp over more than they are supporting Herschel Walker, so right. I think it's totally possible that like this just keeps a couple of people from even wanting to engage in the question of who will be your next senator.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think we've you know we've seen stuff about these uh, Kemp Warnock voters, which you know always seems kind of weird to me, but. Okay, you know, you do you. Right. Look, if you're a Democrat, the best you can hope for is that this sort of keeps turnout low for Walker. It's not at all that people are going to suddenly... Decide that they're liberals. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and vote for Warnock. You know, I saw a lot of conservatives, uh, sort of having, I don't know if it's fair to call them meltdowns on Twitter, (laughs) but there was a lot of, you know, I'm not mad type stuff. Mm -hmm. Dana Lash, who was a, used to be the spokesperson for the NRA. Went on like, uh, I think like it was one of those things where it was like a day later, it was like, really, you're still doing this? Just constantly saying how Walker was still the clear choice in Georgia. And all it made me think of was because if you're look, if you're anti-abortion to the extent, particularly that these people are, you think abortion is murder and you've got a guy here who paid for a murder and you're still saying, oh, he's my guy. It made me think of, you know, when Trump said he could kill a person on Fifth Avenue and people wouldn't care. And this is sort of proving that right.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I guess they think abortion is murder. I think that there's always been a history in conservative circles of like abortion is wrong, except if my daughter needs one or my, right. you know, my son gets a girl pregnant, like, well, God makes exceptions for some mistakes, right? There is this kind of like dedication to it ideologically, but almost not in practice. And I know there are some people in Georgia who certainly feel like this is a non-starter for me. But the frame around abortion is so much about the law and not about people's individual choices. I mean, I don't know which conservative it was, but someone said something like, you know, he doesn't he doesn't need to apologize for this choice. Like, it was legal. And it's like, wait, I thought that was (laughs) y'all's whole thing. I thought you guys had a whole thing about this. Right. God, I am of the mind that, like, the only thing he needs to apologize for is not supporting abortion now. I don't care who, what decisions him and this woman made, you know, 12, 13 years right. ago. That's none of my fucking business. But what is my business is that he's trying to tell me that I can't make that same decision if something happens to me. And so, you know, I used to think that hypocrisy was really politically motivating for people until like five years ago. <laughs> right, and it turns exactly. out like nobody even cares about hypocrisy anymore. But like you would think that would do it at least.
1: Yeah, no, I saw like like Ben Shapiro tweeted something like, the people who are mad at Walker aren't mad that he paid for an abortion. They're mad that he did it and he's anti. It's like yes, yeah, exactly, duh, again. yeah, hundred yeah. like, percent. What do you think you're saying here? Of course, people who are who are pro-choice aren't going to be mad that he paid for an abortion. They're going to be mad that he's, as you said, trying to deny you the right to do that, even while he takes advantage of it.
2: And also, like, there's something about. I think Walker was the one who was like, people change. And you hear people saying, like, people change. And it's like, yeah. And if he had said, look, I did this a few years ago. I really regretted it. And it changed my mind about abortion. And I'm sorry. Like, if there had been some indication that, like, right. but that's not what's happening, right? He hasn't changed his mind. If someone got someone pregnant tomorrow, he'd pay for it. But it's just politically salient. So he's going with what they say. You know, it kind of makes me think about Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, just the worst <laughs> <laughs> Ever in so many ways, like, but you know, she had a son with Down syndrome, right? When she was running for vice president, her daughter, who was a teen, was pregnant, and she was like, "She's going to have this baby." Is that the choice that, like, I would want my teen daughter to make? Maybe not. I don't know. You know, my daughter's two, so I have a couple years before I figure that out. But you, I, I at least in hindsight respect the the like living your values on that one thing. Sure, sure, and. I don't respect the value, but I respect, again, not being a hypocrite about this one thing. And it's just like that's out the door for for the Republican Party. Like it doesn't matter if what you do is completely different than how you would legislate they will elect you anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in order to care about hypocrisy, you have to have a sense of shame and none of these Mm. people have a sense of shame. Yeah, zero, right. You know, and I've been saying like, I, I think maybe people have stopped doing this because they've come around, but, you know, for a while it was always like someone was looking for the, you know, at long last, sir, have you no shame? And it's like, well, that doesn't work because no, they don't have any shame.
2: Right, and there's no value. In fact, there's no like, Political win and apologizing. There's no political win in saying I'm like, shame is not electorally motivating for people, which is just, by the way, a terrible perspective for an electorate to have. It's like, these people run your life. You actually, (laughs) you want them to have some limitations. That's not a benefit anymore, if it ever really, really was.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you pointed out that all Herschel Walker had to do was say, you know, that he's changed or whatever. The problem with that is he has repeatedly said that he has been, uses the words Mm pro-life. That's not my preferred terminology. Right, right. But he has has said that he's been that way his whole life. Right.
2: Minus those couple of days in (laughs) 2009.
1: Right, exactly. So I was going to say, so he really can't say now that he's changed, but of course he could because nobody Cares that he would be completely changing his story. They would just right. say, well, he was just saying that back then, but now he really means it.
2: Right. Exactly. I mean, there's just no, I think probably also, look, Herschel Walker does not come off as an incredibly ethical thoughtful, straight up guy. There have been, this is scandal 100 of him, right? I mean, we're talking about a guy who said he had no secret kids and then he did. We're talking about a guy who said there were too many trees in Georgia. Like nobody is going to him (laughs) for like ethical or intellectual guidance. They are going to him for a vote. That is just kind of a dark truth. This idea that like they couldn't have gotten anybody else is depressing. Uh, although they probably could have, but you know, he's a football star and he's a black Republican, and they like that, right? And so, I think if you had surveyed every Republican voter in Georgia and said, "What are the chances that he's ha- paid someone to have an abortion?" Probably most of them would be like, "Probably pretty high." <laughs> you know, right. like, it's not looking great.
1: Yeah, I saw uh, some. Uh, I, I, I wish I could remember who it was, but I saw some either Republican or conservative or both. I just can't remember. Say basically like, well, he was a he was a pro football player. Of course he spread his seed. Right. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, it's like, you have no, none of these people have a soul. And it's just amazing to me. And and the idea that, you know, in particular, like it, it seems like evangelicals don't care about this. And even, you know, Ralph Reed is out there saying, basically, I don't give a shit. And it's like, you are the people who, like your whole thing was, these are the things you care about. And what a shock to find out that, That wasn't true.
2: Right. I mean, it is kind of fascinating because I think of political parties as like almost like religious in the sense that they are trying to convert other people all of the time. Right. And it has gone from being like, here's what we stand for. So join us to join us because we hate the live. Right. Like that is the only operating value. And when that's the only operating value, like it doesn't matter what else you believe in because you're not you're not voting Democrats that's all they care about you know it's it's it just it just is so empty and I, I know it works for them and it might work for them until the end of our democracy who knows but like at the very least it just feels yeah it feels empty Right? Like, if if there are no rules other than we hate the other team, like, why are you in this fight at all?
1: No, I agree. And my biggest fear is that when you say until the end of democracy, what you're talking about is 2024.
2: I'm talking about, like, (laughs) yeah, or or November. I mean, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's not looking great. Again, like, the fact that, like, we have to even have a little bit of admiration for Liz Cheney just is like, where are we? Like, this is a person with objectively terrible views who just, like, actually thinks that, like, you should— be able to go to whoever gets the most votes should win. That's, I know. That's <laughs> her one value.
0: <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth.
1: Dot com slash the new abnormal. Mark Joseph Stern is a senior writer covering courts and the law for Slate magazine, and he's covered SCOTUS, federal and state courts since 2013. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so
1: much for having me on. Um, so you had a great piece up on Slate earlier in the week called The Supreme Court is Blowing Up Law School Too." Originally, that's why I asked you to come on. And I absolutely still want to talk about that. But before I get to it, I have to ask you, obviously, about the goings on at the Supreme Court this week where the new term began. Can you give us a brief overview maybe of the cases they heard arguments for? Merrill v. Milligan. That's the big one here, it seems like, the redistricting case in Alabama.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the court heard arguments Tuesday in Merrill, and this is a case that challenges Alabama's new congressional districts. There are seven of them, and only one of them has a majority Black population, which means that even though Black people make up nearly a third of the state. They only control 14 percent of the congressional districts. That is pretty clearly illegal under the Voting Rights Act. So the real question in Merrill is whether the court applies the Voting Rights Act or whether it rewrites or strikes down part of the Voting Rights Act to greenlight Alabama's map.
1: I've not covered, but I've followed the Supreme Court long enough to know that you don't necessarily say that, oh, based on oral arguments, this is definitely the way it's going to be decided But based on oral arguments, it's not looking good for the Supreme Court to say to Alabama, hey, you can't do this. Am I right?
4: (laughs) Right. It it never was. Yeah. You know that because the, the court actually stepped in and halted. Um, a lower court decision that tried to implement newer, fairer maps back in February. So on the shadow docket, as we call it, the Supreme Court already showed its hand. And what's happening now is the court is just kind of like figuring out some justification for what it's already done. Seems very likely that by a six to three vote, the court will find some justification to allow Alabama to keep this racial gerrymander. And the only question is how far the conservative bloc goes, whether it does uh, a kind of like modest decision that only partially guts the Voting Rights Act, or whether it it goes all the way as Alabama is requesting and says that the Voting Rights Act actually violates the Equal Protection Clause.
1: Right, which at this point wouldn't be anywhere near a shock if they went that far,
4: it feels like. Nothing from this court surprises me.
1: Yeah. This was Justice uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's first week hearing oral arguments. And I saw in particular in this case, there was a lot of stuff she was saying that was getting a lot of play on Twitter and in some articles. I saw you tweeting about it. I saw some other people. She talked about the 14th Amendment. Can you tell us what she said?
4: This was an incredible moment because for so many decades, the conventional wisdom on the Supreme Court about the 14th Amendment is that it requires a colorblind constitution that basically the the government cannot take race into account under any circumstances ever, that it's bad to... To discriminate against white people. It's bad to discriminate against black people. It's also bad to help black people by, for instance, protecting their right to vote because you're taking their race into account, and that's wrong. And during arguments in, in the Merrill case, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson stepped in with a pretty extraordinary history lesson where she drilled down to the actual history of the 14th Amendment, which was designed to bring newly freed black citizens up to the same level as white citizens. And, and as she pointed out, and there's great scholarship on this, To do so, uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment needed to be conscious of color. The the framers actually wanted to ensure that black people could reach the same stature of citizens that white people had already reached in the United States and took remedial measures, what we today call affirmative action, to ensure that the freedmen had the same rights and privileges to enjoy. And so what what Justice Jackson was trying to say was, how could it possibly be unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment to Consider race in protecting voting rights when th- that's exactly what what, what the framers <laughs> right. of the Fourteenth Amendment were doing when they wrote this this provision into the Constitution.
1: It's weird. You would think originalists would be open to that argument.
4: Shocking, right? Yeah. so shocking to hear that originalists are are only starting with their outcome and then manipulating history <laughs> yes. just by getting there.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what we've learned this last year that we never knew before. Now, um, so I, as I said, this was Justice Jackson's. It was, this was her first week. Hearing arguments, what did we learn about her? You know, in addition to the apparently excellent Fourteenth Amendment point she was making, what did we learn about her substance-wise, style-wise? You know, we always talk about how Clarence Thomas never asks questions; other justices do this. What are we looking at here? Do we think
4: she jumped in immediately? Some justices have waited days, months, years before they become really active questioners. But Justice Jackson just hopped right in and was all over the place in the. Back way, um, starting with the arguments on Monday, which were about water pollution and and the destruction of wetlands, she was grilling the lawyer about the text of the Clean Water Act and quoting from it and trying to kind of pin him down and, and counter... Act her conservative colleagues who were proposing very different, questionable theories. And that held on Tuesday as well in the Merrill case, where she was just brilliantly expounding upon the history of the 14th Amendment and showing no signs of being a newbie. I mean, if, if you had someone who doesn't know any of this, this background listen to arguments on Tuesday and said, who do you think the new justice is? zero people would have guessed that it was KBJ.
1: Wow, that's pretty impressive. Before we get to your article, I I know there's a case coming up that the court just agreed to hear, Gonzalez v. Google, I've seen people talking about this as possibly a big case. It involves Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is what prevents or what protects internet platforms, Twitter, your Facebook, whatever, from being sued for content published by its users. What what do you think we're looking at here?
4: So, you know, Section 230 is, is often called the foundational law of the internet, and it ensures that platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are not held liable for what people upload to them, which makes good... Sure. There are millions of people uploading all kinds of stuff all the time. There's no way these platforms can monitor at all. Um, but in this particular case, what happened was these platforms allegedly allowed terrorist organizations to infiltrate their platforms and put all kinds of recruitment videos that radicalized individuals and led to actual real-world violence. And the argument here is that the platforms behaved so poorly, essentially, that they can't claim protection from, from section. 230 that any kind of reasonable content moderation, any kind of reasonable observance of what was happening on their site would have led them to crack down on this very dangerous kind of speech that was infiltrating their their network. And and that just, you know, it didn't happen. They allowed it to go on and on and on until there was actual violence. And so it's an interesting case. I'll note that on the court below, it was a liberal judge who urged SCOTUS to take this case and and reconsider the scope of Section 230. That's unusual because it's mostly been conservative jurists who have been assailing Section 230, big tech, all of that stuff. Clarence Thomas is sharply criticized it before. So this is an area where there might actually be some cross ideological agreements that section 230 immunity has gone way too far. The question is whether it's really possible to carve out an exception to the usual rule for this kind of terrorist recruitment without toppling the entire structure that has led to the creation of such a vibrant and free internet in the United States.
1: And I guess my question would be you know section 230 is a is very much a conservative bugaboo these days. And is there, again, is there sort of this fear that a conservative court might go further than the facts that are presented to them in this case and sort of knock 230 down completely or strip it of so much authority
4: that it's de facto repealed? It's always a possibility, but I am skeptical that will happen in part because the tech giants who would suffer from that kind of outcome have actually hired a lot of conservative lawyers to make their case to the Supreme Court and to lower courts. They have been hiring um, these kind of big guns for famous conservative law firms, from uh, red state attorney general offices, and mounting this as a kind of conservative argument about free speech and free enterprise, saying, look, the government doesn't need to be meddling in our business. We have right our own right to moderate content as we, as we see fit. This dovetails with these crazy social media censorship laws emerging from states like Texas and Florida. And in those cases, we saw Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett side with the liberal justices in halting a social media censorship law. So I am skeptical that all of the conservatives will jump on board with Thomas to gut Section 230. I think that they are persuaded that the argument for free enterprise and free speech is is stronger here. I don't think that Section 230 is going to be destroyed by this court. But again, nothing really surprises me from SCOTUS. And there's a chance that they could watch so much Fox News that their (laughs) brains turn into mush and they think that that's what they are obligated to do to save the republic. Right, okay.
1: Well, that seems to uh, seg perfectly into your slate piece. The headline on the piece, the title is The Supreme Court is Blowing Up Law School too." Okay, tell me exactly what that means.
4: <laughs> so I went to law school some years ago. When I was in law school, professors generally believed in the Supreme Court as a nonpartisan institution that tried its best to say what the law is without fear or favor, to do equal justice. Yes, it was flawed. Yes, it had a a checkered history, but this was still the court of Brown v. Board. This was the court of of the great civil rights decisions of the 60s, the court that had protected gay rights and women's rights. And so there there was just kind of an instinct to trust it. And obviously, over the last few years, any professor who held that view has had to really grapple with the reality of a court that has been captured by one of two major political parties through asymmetrical hardball, right? That the, Mitch McConnell is just much more ruthless about these things than Democrats, right? And so the court has become, in many ways, corrupted by the political process, and so just delivers these decisions that fall perfectly in line with the GOP platform. And so what I wanted to do was speak to a lot of professors, especially professors who lean left and generally trusted the court in the past, and ask them how they were dealing with this radical shift of the law. I mean, truly, these professors are having to rewrite their syllabuses on the fly. The bar exam is having to redo all of its questions every single year. You know, the court is moving fast and breaking a lot. And so I wanted to ask them not just, you know, how are you dealing with your loss of faith in the court, but how are you dealing with this in the classroom? How are your students dealing with it? How do you teach law when law is increasingly a moving target that just seems to align with what the Republican Party wants?
1: The sense I got is that for a lot of these professors, it's not just the outcomes they don't like, like that would be one thing, but it's the way that the court is getting to those outcomes that has really sort of shaken their faith in, I don't know if it's hyperbolic or not to say, in the whole system.
4: One point I tried to make here is that even these left-leaning professors tend to be small C conservative, right? So they're not, they're not anarchists, they're not right. radicals, they're not communists. Most of them probably vote for Democrats, but they believe in a kind of slow-moving, reliable, Legal system that does not try to radically remake the United States, but that rather kind of takes cases as they come decides real controversies, and hands out wins that feel sufficiently reasoned and uh, prudent and meticulous. And that is just not happening anymore. You know, I mentioned earlier, there's this shadow docket that the Supreme Court is now using to issue these major decisions, sometimes in the middle of the night, without a single line of reasoning. Uh, in, In cases like Dobbs, the court will overturn Roe v. Wade w- without any kind of groundwork being laid or any kind of precedent leading up to it. You know, the court could have spent several years reshaping the doctrine of privacy and, and individual rights. Instead, it just decided to go all out as soon as it had the votes. And it was very clear that the only reason this decision happened is because the personnel on the court changed. And so, what these professors are, are truly struggling with is not just the outcomes, which they find distasteful, but the processes that lead there, and they just feel like this is not the law they once believed in. This feels a lot more just like hardball politics dressed up in the garb of judicial decision-making, and that adds to a lot of the disturbance that we're finding in law schools and in classrooms and in faculty lounges where professors are finding it almost impossible to teach this stuff as law and and really struggling to make students believe that this is a court that deserves anyone's trust.
1: Yes, okay, let me play devil's advocate for one second, wouldn't conservatives and don't conservatives argue that the courts been doing exactly this for decades, but just in the other direction? Like I feel like my entire life I've been hearing that Roe was made up law, for example.
4: Yes, you are correct that conservatives have been accusing the court of doing exactly this in the other direction. And I interviewed a number of legal realists who never thought the court was anything other than just politics all the way down. Uh, And I'm sympathetic to that perspective. And this is something Justice Kagan has written about very eloquently. I still think there is something about following the right process to legitimate decision making. I mean, not to get too in the weeds of the theory here, but think about the way that the court developed its abortion jurisprudence. It didn't wake up one day and say, we're finding a right to abortion. It it found a right to raise a family, to direct your children's upbringing. It found a right to use contraception. It found a right for even unmarried couples to use contraception. And then it extended that right to uh, the right to terminate a pregnancy before viability. And that whole process took something like 50 years of development. And the same is true of of gay rights. You know, the, the court first embraced gay rights in the 90s. It took these incremental steps in the in the aughts and finally struck down same sex marriage bans in twenty fifteen. That was a twenty year process as well. This court is not even bothering to lay that kind of groundwork or legitimate its decisions with real process or real reasoning. It is not really developing doctrine so much as declaring that this is the rule now and everybody better follow it or else. Um, it is, uh, again, moving so quickly that it's impossible for professors to even write a single syllabus and have it hold throughout the semester because by the end of the semester, half of the cases uh, on the syllabus might have been overturned. The law will have been changed very very radically. And that is unusual for for the United States. That is not how our court system has traditionally worked. And it's frightening in in a country that has given its top court more power than any other branch of government, in my view, and and than any other country has given its top court. You know, our Supreme Court is far more powerful than any other nation's Supreme Court. And so the fact that it just looks like it's playing politics, it's extra disturbing.
1: Well, and also what's disturbing is a lot of those uh, examples you just gave, um, birth control, etc., are also on this conservative hit list, if you will, for things that they want overturned. So are we looking at, I mean, you know, people have been sounding the alarm on this ever since uh, since Dobbs or before Dobbs, but particularly since Dobbs, that that ain't the
4: end of it. Absolutely, and people have been sounding the alarm because Clarence Thomas said so in a in a separate opinion. He said after this, we should overturn the right to contraception, the right to marriage, all of these other crucial rights that spring from the same doctrine, and just redo it all, start on a blank <laughs> slate. And that that again gets to this question of where the court derives its legitimacy from. You know, it does not have an army to enforce its decisions. It does have a police force, but its jurisdiction is exactly one block. As soon as a Supreme Court cop steps into the street, he doesn't have any power anymore. So they can't send their little police force down to the the Florida legislature and demand that it follow their rulings. It it has to have the trust of the public, and it builds that trust by building precedent and by being careful not to shatter the law so quickly that everybody gets confused or outraged or disgusted, that people can rely on the court's decisions and, and structure their lives In reliance on those decisions. This is a point that the liberal justices made when dissenting from Dobbs saying, look, Roe v. Wade has been on the books for half a century. People have truly ordered their lives around this decision and the rights that it guarantees. You are upending, sort of pulling the carpet out from under millions of women and girls by overturning this decision all at once, without even any warning, except for the leak that came in May. Um, And that, I think, is a a huge problem. It's a problem for us as citizens, and it's especially a problem for law professors who often have bought into the mythology of the court and are now having to deprogram themselves.
1: Well, and to me, and I won't even pretend to be, you know, unbiased on this, but to me, the problem is like, you know, when conservatives say, well, the the court's been doing this for decades and they point to Roe or they point to Griswold or whatever, all those decisions were in the sort of service of expanding rights and, and giving more rights to the people, whereas the the decisions now are taking those rights away. And I do feel like there's a difference, particularly what you said in terms of like ordering society, structuring society. It's one thing to say, Hey, you can't do that to those people anymore. You you can't treat them unfairly or you can't stop them from doing this. It's another thing to say that thing that you've been able to do for the last 50 years, oh, you can't do that anymore.
4: (laughs) I think that's a great point. I would, tag that Justice Alito, in his Dobbs opinion, tried to frame it as the court just relinquishing its own power and handing power back to the states right. and to Congress and to the democratic process. I think that's a really dishonest way of framing it, because what the court is really doing is taking away power from individual people, exactly from the actual humans who make up the polity of the United States. It's telling them, you no longer exercise this right. You are subject to the whims of state legislatures that may be extremely extremely gerrymandered and unrepresentative of the state population as a whole. And so much of this really depends on how you are framing these rights. Conservatives try to frame them in a way that makes the court sound very modest and like it's relinquishing its own power. I disagree with that fundamentally. I think it's clearly exercising and wielding power in a way that Uh, It's very different from past courts, from the court that decided Brown v. Board and the court that decided Roe, and kind of reordering society in a way that it prefers, which we had thought was not supposed to be the role of a conservative court.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, in the piece, and you brought this up before, this legal realism, and I thought that that was really interesting because as I was reading it, I was going, oh, I guess that's what I am. <laughs> but, like, not not in a good way, like, not in a this is how it should be, but in a cynical, like, okay, yes, this is the way it is. I'm assuming, or I think it actually, you wrote about this in the article, the professors who sort of cotton to this philosophy are probably less affected by the current goings-on than, than the ones who don't. But the ones who, who aren't legal realists and the ones who are looking around going, I can't believe this is happening, what are they doing? And and, and you mentioned you, you talked also in the piece about your father, so maybe use that as an example.
4: Yeah, well, my father retired. He was a law professor for 41 years. He's 67. And I don't know if you know much about legal academia, but many professors stay on into their seventies and eighties. Right. Maybe he would have in a different world, but he looked around when he hit retirement age and said, I don't want to be teaching this garbage. You know, I don't want to teach the downfall of the Constitution for the remainder of my career. I'm going to take the offer to just retire and do what I like because this is way too depressing. Um, And specifically, he told me, I cannot explain these decisions as law. I cannot dress up these decisions in the garb of legal reasoning. These are clearly political decisions uh, that are driven by political considerations and personal biases. And I just don't feel like I I can pretend anything otherwise when I'm standing in front of my students. That was a pretty common refrain that I heard among professors who felt like the scales had fallen from their eyes over the last few years. um, That they they are kind of recalibrating how they explain these cases to students. of them mentioned that there's a big difference between how you teach 1L classes and how you teach upperclassmen. You know, your first year in law school, you're assigned to classes, you don't have much of a choice. And I think a lot of professors feel an obligation to teach things right down the middle uh, and not inject their personal opinion because the students just had no choice but to be in that class. Sure. Um, but for upper class uh, courses where students have a choice, a lot of the professors I spoke with said, "I am putting more of myself into my course every day, and I am not telling students what to think. I'm not telling them how they should view these cases and what the court is doing. But I want to make it very clear how I feel and give them that perspective, so they don't think that we're all just worshiping at the altar of a totally apolitical SCOTUS. Students need to hear our perspective. They trust us more, uh, even if they disagree with us. They they appreciate us putting our views out there so that they have some baseline when they're developing their own views.
1: Well, and again, you brought up the students and I I want to close out the interview by asking about them and... You know, because they are really, in terms of what's happening with the law schools, this obviously affects them more than anybody. The sense I got from your piece is that the students were actually giving some faith to a lot of these professors who have lost faith
4: in the system. That's exactly right. That's like the one piece of optimism (laughs) to be derived from this piece, I think. Every professor said, I do not want to quit. I love teaching my students. I am so enlightened and delighted by them every day. Most of these professors were far younger than my dad, so retirement is not not option. And they told me like, I need my students to give me that kind of energy and optimism now. And the, over the last few years, especially, students come into law school with a very cynical view of the court. They are much less idealistic and optimistic than, than past generations of law students. They are here to learn the tools that they need to work within a system that they understand to be imperfect at best and corrupted at worst. And these professors said, we feel like we are able to do that, that if not us, who? And that." They are ready to devote however much of their professional careers are necessary to uh, helping these students become much more effective lawyers and try to litigate within a system that has been damaged, but hopefully not entirely beyond repair.
1: So to sum up, we're all legal realists now.
4: Yeah, yes, that is exactly <laughs> right. Justice okay. Hagan will be saying that at a future event. No doubt. Yes, doubt. <laughs> All
1: right. Mark, thank you so much. That was really enlightening, and I really appreciate you coming on.
4: Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate
1: it. Uh, Joining us now is Daily Beast political reporter Roger Sullenberger, who is now very, very famous. Roger, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. (laughs) So on Monday, Roger, of course, Broke the story of the former girlfriend of anti-abortion without exceptions, GOP senatorial candidate Herschel Walker says, the former girlfriend says, with receipts, that Walker paid for her to get an abortion in 2009. Roger, without obviously giving away any trade secrets, Walk us through how you got this story.
5: It's a long time in the making. The campaign likes to ding me saying that I'm obsessed with Herschel Walker. But any investigative reporter should be obsessed with Herschel Walker. He is one of the most fascinating figures in American public life. In the 40 years I've been alive, I'm convinced with what I've found out through my work. I've been doing this, digging on him, starting back in... I guess earlier this year when I published a piece that was just based on, on a tip about his business record and some false claims that he made. As I started looking at these false claims, I began to think, oh, is this guy's entire life a lie? Some details in, in the documents that I was able to dig up were just kind of strange, right, and merited further exploration. So, you know, in my downtime or when I was hunting for a story or something, I would just google the dude, right? I would just do as much research on him as possible, do as much reading as I could, and I start to learn a lot of stuff about him. There's countless articles by the way from like way back in the day. The guy would do press all the time, like all the time. There's all these like local news articles on newspapers.com from like the, the 80s uh, when he was in college and when he's in his prose. And, you know, he just does, you know, cannot turn down an interview. And in those interviews, he says contradictory things that like just left and right doesn't make sense. You know, he says he has a, he had a stutter and he was made fun of, right? As a kid. That's where he says that his trauma came from is from being bullied for his stutter. I found an article where he said that he didn't even know he had a speech impediment while he was growing up. Like he literally said that when he was an adult. So yeah, it's, it's stuff like that that just, you know, I would compulsively Google him because it's fun and funny and fascinating really. And one of these stretches just happened across an old site. And there was a claim that he had fathered a child out of wedlock. And I'd never heard that before. I went, huh. And then proceeded to do some, a bunch of engineering on, you know, the Wayback Machine that was able to track this thing down. And I broke the news that he had a secret son. And he confirmed that. So like he says, you know, the Daily Beast, nothing's true in the Daily Beast. Right. Like that, that's his denial. Yeah, right, man. You confirmed two of my stories all day oh, right. you yourself right. Confirmed these kids' stories, right? And in the process of doing that, I was able to find a number of people in Walker's close circles, a number of past partners that I've spoken with and have spent like the last four months or so just working the story just like working it and working it and working it. I've had ups and downs. There is a bunch of stuff that is not in reporting shape for various reasons, but none of them being like factual error or something like that, right? Just in different stages of reportability. I've learned so much about the guy and in the process of that, I got this story and we reported it We weren't sitting on it, by the way, for an October surprise. This is not OPPO research. This is nothing like that.
1: I'm sorry. I was just about to ask you that because I saw a clip of Megyn Kelly the other day claiming exactly, she was like, this is clearly OPPO research that was being held for an October surprise. So you are categorically stating that neither of those things is true.
5: Yeah, there are two ways to look at that, right? One is that it's an insult and, you know, how dare you think that, like, I don't have the resources to possibly do this on my own, right? The other thing is, like, that's a compliment. They don't think that I could have the resources to report it on my own. It's like, yeah, well, I fucking do, buddy. You know, that's been a a talking point. And Walker himself is, like, spinning it that way, right? Of course. He's like, this is from the Democrats. It is not that. This did not come from the Democratic Party. This did not come from from that. Like, this was the product of, like, a series of convergences, thanks to, in large part, really, just work.
1: Right. You did research like a journalist does. Yes.
5: And then met people.
1: Right. Got so much has happened since you broke this story. And I don't want to, I was originally going to walk through it step by step, but there's just quite frankly, too much at this point. What is the absolute latest on this as we are uh, recording this on, uh, on Thursday?
5: It's about what, 2.50 PM on Thursday, October 6th. And Walker just held a press conference. And in that press conference, he was asked if he'd ever reached out to the mothers of his kids, because we reported just last night that it turns out that he not only had an abortion that he paid for with this woman, he also had a child with this woman. So he implied later on that the reason he had not reached out to any of the mothers of his kids is because this person is, or he's, Trying to get people to think that this is, yeah, another allegation of another kid that this woman doesn't exist. Like, he's trying to paint her as someone who doesn't exist. Like, well, how could it be the mother of one of my kids? I know who they all are. I've already, you know, said that I love my kids. So I am breaking the news now that, like, yeah, dude, you have acknowledged her. Right. She is the mother of one of your kids by your own admission. So why haven't you reached out to her yet? He has not reached out to her. Another detail in this story, I know that there are many. It's a fascinating story. Just like, I'm not like bragging or... No, it is. It's just like, it's fascinating. This woman is is incredible. She's incredibly brave. I keep saying that. I know, but it's it's really important. Yeah. But also, his relationship with her is so strange. You know, like he wasn't around. He did not raise this kid, like at all. He just... Didn't And he's not in touch with her in any meaningful sense. However, this summer, a top campaign surrogate with whom she communicates from time to time reached out to her after a report broke, asking her to vouch for Walker's character to provide a statement to say that he's, you know, whatever. That person, that that campaign surrogate, has reached out to this woman as recently as late August, according to text messages that I had seen. That's crazy. And he's not reaching out to her now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely unbelievable. The night that you originally filed the first story on Monday, I guess it was, he said that everything was lies and he was going to file a defamation suit on Tuesday morning. So have you been deposed yet in this suit? I regret to tell you (laughs) that we cannot
5: comment on pending litigation, (laughs) I really don't know that and cannot speculate on it. But I can say that we stand behind our reporting 100%.
1: Okay. I mean, from everything I've seen, no such suit was ever filed. But I understand why you can't get into that. Another big sort of fallout from the story has to do with Walker's son, Christian Walker, who came out really strongly after your story broke. And he did not defend his father, to say the least. He went after his father pretty hard. And Herschel is now sort of painting Christian as part of the left, which I mean, Christian is well known as a sort of conservative family values type uh, person who, you know, a TikTok influencer. So what a weird thing for for Herschel to say about his son.
5: It is the what about, right? It's like that is, it's just reflex at this point, right? Like, well, it's the Democrats. It sort of sounds like what he's implying is the son is doing the bidding of the left, doing the bidding of Democrats and doesn't know any better or whatever, but yeah, exactly. If you spend 10 seconds on his son's TikTok feed or Twitter feed from like before, like June, I guess, from before when these right. started coming out, he started like shifting a bit. You know, you could see it was really interesting. Like he put out some like some comments that I think people may have read the wrong way, like reading it now. Like he he remarked something on Father's Day and people were saying, oh, well, it's so hypocritical of you. But If you look back now, I don't, I think he's like sending some messages. And he said this himself in one of his his videos, actually. He was like, no, no, the reason that I speak out about like, you know, absentee fathers about people like nick cannon or whatever like he loves to hate nick cannon he just rails on the dude like in very 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 mean awful way and he's like no i'm doing this uh because this is my experience i'm talking about my experience i'm implicitly talking about my dad and i always have been right it's just what he says in these videos so yeah the the guy seems like you know he might be a bit more self-aware i think than many people will give him credit for i'm not sure how much people you know credit people want to give to him you know on the left or whatever i mean that's another debate for some other thing but like it seems to me like the kid is is going through a moment of really painful growth that kid if you stop and think about it is probably reckoning with uh, a whole lot of hurt right now and you know that's that's kind of what we're we're seeing i think play out in his-
1: no, I think that's entirely true. And look, regardless of what you think of Christian Walker and his beliefs, nobody deserves to have a father like he apparently does. And I also, like, I can't, you can't be mad at him for being implicit for so long until it just reached a point where he's like, right, I have to be explicit about it now. No 21, 22 year old out there really wants to go out there and trash their own dad Particularly when their dad is a a famous figure who, you know, a lot of people admire or whatever. Yeah, I agree with you completely.
5: Yeah, don't get me wrong. Dude is a Republican.
1: Oh, sure. Of course. He bit the bullet for a while. An interesting thing about this has been the Republican reaction to the story, which has pretty much been, I guess, not unexpectedly at this point to close ranks around Walker from like the electeds, like the Rick Scott to the entire Fox News conservative media ecosphere with, you know, the usual exception the bulwarks of the world, the S.E. Cups of the world, who actually are conservatives with, you know, principles. But like, this is not even a surprise at this point, right? It's just all the Daily Beast is evil, you are a paid operative of the Democratic Party, and we don't care.
5: Yeah, I mean, like, I just got a uh, a DM here that says, we're not going to let you assholes ruin Herschel Walker's campaign in life. The more you try to, the more people will rally behind him. Your obsession, there we go, your obsession with Walker is fucking creepy. I've had stuff sent like this that's, like, much, much worse.
1: I'm sure. It
5: does seem like they are rallying behind him. And, you know, I do want to steer clear of punditry and speculation politically on this issue. Uh, because I'm looking at it from a very narrow reporting perspective, right?
1: Oh, understood. Yeah.
5: But what I can say is that the denials that, that are out there, right? I can talk about that. And the denials are super fascinating and disturbing because it's like, all right, on one hand, he calls it a lie. Like it's flat out lie. And then on the other hand, he's also seeking or appealing to, I should say more accurately, religious redemption and forgiveness. And he's doing both of these things at once and this was already happening organically within, like the the right wing, within real, like tried and true, diehard conservatives. They were saying both things in the same sentence. Of course, and it can't both be true, right? So which one, which one is it? But like for someone. A whole movement, a whole party. You know, I don't think it is the whole party that be- that believes this, but like a sizable number of people appear to, to believe that like both of those things are true at the same time, and they really do believe it. They're not being cynical; a lot of them. They really believe it. That's fucking disturbing, right? I mean, what kind of of mind, you know, do you have that you're rationalizing a hypocrisy that is this deeply baked into conservative ideology, right? This is this is abortion. He's an anti-abortion absolutist. This is The thing. This is the religious right, and this is their—they're called celeb, right? This is their raison d'être and other French phrases, whatever. But they are able to just like square it in their brains. And so, like, what else can you square? You know, if you—if you can get around this and say two things are true at the same time, I'm terrified of what minds like that are capable of justifying. And I think that there's a lot more buried in that response than people are are really paying attention to. And that response really fucking creeps
1: me out. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we've seen that with them with a lot of other issues. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're super busy and I appreciate you making the time for us. And obviously we'll be following along to see where this story leads. Thanks a lot, Roger. Josie Duffy Rice,
2: Andy Levy,
1: so now we come to the segment of the show that we like to call "Fuck that guy. I will tell you who my fuck that guy is first, and then I will let you close out the show so my my fuck that guy is the guy running for Senate in the lovely state slash commonwealth of of Pennsylvania, and uh, you know him as Dr. Oz. A story came out uh a couple days ago that Back when Oz was actually a real doctor, he did a bunch of scientific studies at the Columbia University Institute of Comparative Medicine. And in the 75 studies he did, they did over a thousand uh, experiments on live animal subjects. And according to Jezebel, killed 329 dogs in these studies. Now, Now, to be fair, Oz did not pull the trigger, so to speak. He did not kill these dogs themselves, but he was, again, the principal investigator. So obviously this led to John Fetterman's crack social media team tweeting things like breaking Dr. Oz is a puppy killer. Other things like, I love my dogs. Apparently some sick people like Dr. Oz get their jollies by harming animals. <laughs> and all of that seems a little, eh, a little over the top, but look at th- at this point, we're so far gone that I I can't even get upset about it anyway, so my fuck that guy for this week is is not John Fetterman and his crack social uh media team. It's dr Oz puppy killer, and while Jezebel says he didn't kill any of the animals himself, I have my doubts.
2: I have to say it would also would feel different if it felt like he was. A good doctor. Like, I'm like, (laughs) yeah. And then you went and you like decided you were going to hawk stupid diet pills that don't work. It's like, what was the point of all this medical research? It's not like he cured cancer. He, you know, a lot of dogs died and then he was like, ice your fat and it will fall off or.
1: (laughs) Right. Though, again, to be fair, he was a, you know, he was a fairly respected, I think, uh, a heart surgeon, I think.
2: Yeah. It's like Ben Carson, you know, they like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Quick. It was, there was something there. And then.
1: I know. And then they went another way.
2: a very other way.
1: Yeah. So Dr. Oz, fuck that guy.
2: Yeah, I'm with you.
1: So who is your fuck that guy for today, Josie?
2: My fuck that guy for today and all days is (laughs) Matt Walsh,
1: who, if you don't know
2: who he is, please enjoy your life. Do not find (laughs) out. Don't even... Don't look it up.
1: Not the comic actor Matt Walsh.
2: Not the comic actor Matt Walsh. In fact, if you don't immediately know who I'm talking about, you don't know who I'm talking about. <laughs> there is no like possible other Matt Walsh that we could possibly be discussing who's as bad as this one. Matt Walsh, who is like the angriest conservative I think I've ever encountered, sees liberals as like a, I don't know, some sort of like target to hit in war versus real other people that live in the country with him. Um there's evidence or there's recordings of him on a uh, years ago on a radio show he used to do where he talks about how more 16-year-olds should be getting pregnant. His argument is that you're the most fertile at 16 and that the problem is not teenage pregnancy. It's unmarried pregnancy. Right. Now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> where to begin?
2: Right. Where do we begin? I mean, there's the obvious like that's weird and creepy and totally like that's gross and weird and creepy and misogynistic there's all of that right but there's this other thing too which is like why are you so obsessed with people having babies like people are having babies past 16 as adults fine right like you don't have a farm you don't run a farm you don't need 12 people to help you churn butter why are you so obsessed with people having as many kids as they possibly can what is that about that's the thing i just don't get from like the matt walsh to the elon musk like we're underpopulated thing where I look around and I'm like, that does not seem to be our problem personally. And I don't understand this weird obsession with even saying out loud, well, we need more teenage pregnancy. Why? What are there? What's, why? I don't get it. And that's beyond the fact that like, here's a guy who says he's, you know, cares about family values and ethics and you know, people being upstanding and not being on the government's page roll and long marriages, et cetera, that like thinks it's a good idea for sixteen year olds to get married and have children. I mean, I we know where that ends up. We tried it and it ends up with a very high divorce rate and a lot of people you know, not able to pay their bills or get a job. What's the deal?
1: I mean, there's so many things here. I mean, first of all, we could talk about how Matt Walsh is like one of those people who loves to call people groomers. Yes. Here he is advocating for, you know, 16-year-old child brides. So there's that. And then there's like, they do this whole thing. And I listened to the clip and it was him. And I don't even know who the other person was. And they're talking about how until the recent past, this was the norm. Right. And it's like, well, you know what? A lot of things used to be the norm until the recent past. Most and women
2: died in childbirth until the recent past,
1: you know? Well, right. And one of the guys was like, back when 16-year-olds were getting married, you know, you saw a lot of people who were married for 50-plus years, you know, they didn't <laughs> get divorced. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, you mean back when it was like impossible for a woman to get a divorce? Right, and- <laughs> right.
2: Women can't have credit cards, so that would make it- Well, well exactly. The reason, and they can't like, yeah, Exactly.
1: Yeah. And, you know, back when women could be getting the hell beaten out of them by right. their husband every day and not right. be able to leave them. And and it's like to just pretend that none of that is true and just be like, see, here's a direct correlation. These people were happy because they never got divorced. It blows my mind how ignorant these people are. But the grooming thing is what really gets me. I mean, yeah, Matt Walsh totally. is all, all over the Internet talking about pretending to care about your kids and you know, and teachers and everything like that. And then, of course, you know, uh, it's so frustrating.
2: Just two thoughts on that. One is, I do not believe for a second that any of these people, if they try and travel back to the early 1800s where like, yeah, having kids at 8, 16 and getting married then like that, everybody did it. They were married forever. I don't think they'd like it. It's all theater. It's all pretend because these are all people who benefit from the like rise of a more independent and liberal family structure more than they're willing to let on. But I think the second thing is also like, Matt Walsh is explicitly not apologizing for this. He said on Twitter, basically, like, this is the part where I'm supposed to apologize and I never will. It is really indicative of, like, a strain of thought. I mean, it ties back to the Herschel Walker thing, right? Like, there is no ability to say I was wrong. I apologize. I made a mistake. I thought something back then that I don't think now. I was exaggerating for effect. Like, none of that, right? It's just unapologetic hypocrisy, cruelty, misogyny, like conservative thought.
1: It's the pseudo alpha male shit where it's like apologies are seen as a sign of weakness rather than right, maybe a sign of growth or like, oh yeah, I, I, I said shit and I was wrong. And guess what? I'm older now and I know better. But it, you're never going to get that from any of these people. They'll either say you're lying or when there's audio or whatever, they'll just say, oh, I'm not apologizing for that.
2: Right. And that works. Thankfully, Matt Walsh is not in office, but- At this rate, in a few decades, we'll be calling him, like, Sir Matt Walsh or (laughs) Resident Dictator or whatever. I don't
1: know. It's not looking good. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. See you next time.